Hey community, welcome to our sermon podcast for wanderers, seekers, and thinkers, for deconstructing and reconstructing. This is a feed of Open Door Church, a faith community focused on God's love and grace, a progressive church built around action, community, and people. Enjoy this week's message and check back often as we're posting new content every week. Our hope is to reclaim Romans and reclaim some of the some of the language and do something particularly unique. So over the last uh, forty to fifty years, the scholarship around Romans has shifted quite significantly. So for for many of us, Romans was introduced as as a theological treatise. We're going to talk about the Roman road to salvation. Anyone? That's a term we know. And we're going to follow Paul's theological journey on how to be saved. And that's all Romans was. For many, many years, that's all Romans was. And specifically, uh, Romans has been used in conversation uh, to pit pit a works-based theology or a works-based salvation with a grace-by-faith tradition. And so if you are Calvinist in the 1700s, 1800s, you look at Romans and you go, look, right here, all this stuff that they taught us in the Catholic Church was wrong, we're right, and you create this argument. And for the next 300 plus years, we've been having this debate over Romans and this works versus faith in this, in this conversation. Uh, but sometime in the 70s, some scholars started looking at this, this letter a little bit differently because, as most letters go, they're not written as a theological treatise. They're written to a specific people, place, and time. So when we read Corinthians, we don't have any problem with this. We go, oh, this was written to a church in Cor- Corinth. Uh, we see we've got letters uh, 1 and 3 or something like that, and we're missing a letter in between, and we're missing the correspondence letters. So we're like piecing together historical events with Corinthians that we don't, we haven't done for long. We haven't done with Romans. So when we look at Romans, we have to go, okay, what do we know about what's happening in Rome? What do we know about Paul's relationship with them? And why is he writing this letter? And once we learn those things, it completely changes his point and his purpose and what he's trying to do in this letter. And, uh, and so that's kind of where we've been. Is that Does that all like stack up? Is that what I've done so far for those of you that are somewhat familiar? Oh, good. This morning, though, I want to talk a bit about imagination, which is kind of strange because we don't think a lot about this. Um, But one of the things that I think uh, that someone else has identified, this is not my amazing beautiful insight into the world of Romans. One of the things that I think is happening in this book, in this letter, is Paul is offering us an alternative image and vision for the world. And we lack often the imagination to find newness when we look out into the world around us. The the two that wrote uh, this book I'm referencing... Um, I can't remember the name of it. Kiesmatt and Walsh doesn't doesn't matter exactly, but Kiesmatt and Walsh write that 
those who control the images control society because they control the cultural imagination of the people. So let's think about it this way. We've, done, we've actually mentioned this book before, but I want to... Um, this could be... This is graphic. We have kids left. This is graphic in a sexual violence kind of way. If, uh, if you need to close your ears or walk out or whatever, I'll give you a second. But, but I want to I share, because her insights are so phenomenal and so uh, direct... Her name is Nancy Pineda Madrid, and she's, she's writing, she is writing on violence in Ciudad Juarez, sorry, in Mexico. And specifically, it's about a term we have sort of conjured is called feminicide, violence or, or homicide directed toward women specifically because of their gender. And since the 90s, We've seen this trend toward, toward this, um, specifically in Juarez. And it's now spreading, like you can read about it. I've done too much explaining on that. Bear with me for a minute. So her question is, how do we let this happen in our culture? So, so she's speaking from this specific place, from this specific culture. We can do this with our own culture. I mean, excuse me, with our own location and our own culture around us and, and those kinds of things. Um, but I want to give you an example of somebody who's, who is working hard to identify the cultural imagination in their society and what it leads to and why it matters. Does that make sense? Not at all. We'll get there, I think. So here's what she does. She says, look, in the cultural imagination of, of Mexico, broadly, she writes, we have images of women and, uh, and tales, folklore, religious, tales of women and who they are and, and how they fit in in the world. And what that does is, is it gives, when we tell those stories, it gives us a way to think about ourselves. If this is what the cultural story that's being told is about the Virgin Mary and her willingness to suffer in the world and her willingness to give herself completely to others, my role, I'm not a woman, but my role as a woman then is to follow this path and suffer quietly in the midst of suffering. So the cultural tale is being told up sort of on a societal level. But individually, we experience this, this is what women are supposed to behave like, or this is what religious women are supposed to behave like. And so I then subjugate myself, again, I'm not a woman, but speaking. I then subjugate myself to my family and place myself lower. And patriarchal systems can take place because I'm living and breathing this out as I'm supposed to. And so what, uh, what Pineda Madrid does is walk through all of the cultural icons and the, the stories that are being told of women, and she sets up a few different things. So you have uh, the saintly La Guadalupe, and you have, uh, I'm going to butcher pronunciation on this, my apologies for those of you that speak Spanish. And on the flip side, uh, the evil La Malinche. Malinche. 
Sorry. So what we're given, she's writing, what we're given is two alternatives. You can be this saintly woman that suffers this way, or you can be this everything that's wrong with women this way. And you have this binary of what womanhood is. And what it does is it sets up a, a cultural understanding about women and identity that allows them to, to be subjugated in society and allows, her argument, allows the birthplace of feminicide to take place. As this has gone on, as, as more and more people have moved into large cities uh, and are traveling at night uh, to work in uh, factories and different things like that, uh, sometimes alone, they are, they are just gone missing in the night. And it, sometimes it gets covered up, sometimes it gets explained away as, oh, well, she dressed provocatively, or, oh, this happened, or, oh, that's just uh, gang violence, or something that we don't have to address. And she's asking the question, why wouldn't we be able to address this? And she's telling the cultural stories that take place to help us understand what allows this to happen. In a way, Paul is doing the same thing in Romans. And we're going to talk in a minute about how we can do the same thing here, not in a sense of, well, in a sense of identifying what are those stories that are being told. And how do we imagine something different? So it's taken us a long time to get here. Two weeks ago, we addressed the political stuff in Romans chapter 1. And I want us to think about this for a minute because Paul is taking the dominant imagery in his culture and he's allowing it to be repurposed to tell and imagine a world that looks differently. So he writes, Paul, a slave of Jesus, called to be an ambassador, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, the gospel concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. So do you remember doing all this? Paul, a slave... So in our honor-shame culture of Rome, a slave is the lowliest of lowlies. So the only reason that we listen to a slave is because what comes next is a slave of Caesar. I listen to you because you have authority, because you're speaking on behalf of somebody in power. So he says, Paul, a slave of Jesus, not of Caesar, not of one with power of, of honor in our culture, but a slave of Jesus, called to be an ambassador, another political term, and set apart for the gospel of God. Gospel, then, is also a term of victory in time of war. So someone would, uh, uh, in battle, you win, you have to send information back home to say, look, we won. That word is good news, that word is gospel. You send the gospel of your victory back home to Caesar to say we were victorious. So Paul, in this first sentence, everything is political imagery. Everything is a part of the empire. Everything speaks to this culture. And he's taking those cultural images and reshaping them to imagine something wholly different. The question we have to ask is, how do we do that? So this is what I love so much about Pineda Madrid. 
is that she's able to unpack this, the social imaginaries of, in her culture, identify what they, what they tell us about ourselves and what they tell us about our communities, and then begin to address them and how we can tell a different story and a different image. Keys Mountain Walsh again say, to be liberated from such dominant imperial imagination, we must sing new songs, reinterpret powerful symbols, and tell alternative stories. And you know we love Walter Brueggemann. He says, the key pathology of our time, which seduces us all, is the reduction of the imagination so that we are too numbed too satiated and co-opted to do serious imaginative work. He says we can't, we've been, everything has been turned into a world that we can't escape the cultural imagination around us. So how do we do this? How do we retell a story? This is what Paul is trying to get us to do when he launches into his thesis in verse 16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's the good news. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also the Greek. Every piece of this sentence is pulling on the cultural images, the empire images that surround him and are telling a different story. It's not the gospel of Caesar. It's not the salvation and the peace that Caesar has brought for this people. It is the gospel of God for salvation for everyone, not just the Roman people. I can see you don't believe me. That's okay. I want to read a quote from the same time period. And we did this uh, two weeks ago as well. But I, I don't know if I said it enough because it just blows my mind. So we have to do it again. The author writes, A Savior who put an end to war and will restore order everywhere by His appearing has realized the hopes of our ancestors. Not only has He surpassed earlier benefactors of humanity, but no other will surpass Him. The God's birthday was for the whole world, excuse me, was for the world the beginning of the gospel that He brought. You know where we pulled that from? This is how we read Paul's letters. Right? This is the same language. Isn't this the same language as Paul? It's not Paul. A Savior who put an end to war. Restore order everywhere. We just did a whole series on shalom. Order. Shalom. This isn't talking about God. God's birthday isn't talking about Jesus' birth. The God's birthday was for the world the beginning of the gospel that He brought. That's not about God. That's about Caesar. Paul is literally ripping off the language of empire to tell a different vision for the world. A Savior who put an end to war and will restore order everywhere. Caesar, 
by his appearing, has realized the hopes of our ancestors. This man's amazing. This is the stories they tell about Caesar. Salvation, hope, peace, restoration of communities. This is the story they tell about Caesar and the empire. And here, Paul is using all of the same language. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Not the gospel that Caesar brought, but the gospel that came through the power of God for salvation to everyone. By the way, faith is also a very significant Roman value. They were the the kings of faith. Their gods told them what faith was supposed to look like and how it was supposed to be, and it and it was for them internalized. But Paul writes about something wholly different and wholly other when he talks about faith that is offered to both the Jew and to the Greek. Paul has this ability, and we don't like Paul that much sometimes, but Paul has this ability to envision, to imagine a world that functions differently. Paul has the ability to identify the imagery in his culture and then help us begin subverting that imagery. Unfortunately, we've taken Paul for all of these years and we've used him to build up empire. We've used Paul to, uh, to reinforce status quo. But what Paul is doing is actually quite revolutionary. He's undoing the system of empire by looking at the social and cultural images of his day and saying, we can undo this. And in the same way, I would say prophets, people with extremely keen insight and ability to imagine a world differently, Pineda Madrid is able to look at her community and say, here is the imagery that we're using to talk about life and to tell our stories. But this is the oppression that that imagery creates. And here is new imagery that we can tell these stories, these places that we can tell so that we lose and leave behind the old oppressive structures. I was able to to go to Juarez last year. And through the streets of Juarez, you will find pink crosses painted all over the city. Those pink crosses represent both the women who have died and a resistance to the oppressive structures in their culture. And it takes both for us to function as Paul is writing, for us to function as God has called us to. We have to both identify those, that imagery, and then we have to write or tell or sing new songs to tell and create new images or to reinterpret the ones that we have so that we can live a life that is liberated that is free from those oppressive sources. 
it works a little bit like this. There's a, a lot of like recently, and I say recently, like the last 20 years, uh, city planning has taken like a right turn. Like, how are we on city planning right now? Uh, city planning has taken a right turn. Here's what happens. We build, I grew up in Fort Worth, Texas. If you go to Fort Worth, Texas, you need to know the freeway systems like we need to know Lougheed and Dudney here. The freeway systems, I'm not kidding about this, okay? Are you ready? Okay. There's, there's, uh, which way are we? Okay. There's, uh, there's Dallas and a freeway that goes here, okay? Around Dallas. Stay, hang with me. This is going to make sense at some point, I, I promise. Okay, and then over here, there's a freeway that goes around Fort Worth. Okay, Across the middle, there's one, two, three, eight to ten lane freeways. Okay, you with me still? From the south, there's one giant freeway that goes north, and then it splits. And then it goes right through both of them, and then it comes back together up here. And then there's another one that goes uh, from, where are we, Fort Worth... North, sorry, north here and down this way. And then there's another one over here that comes straight between them. Are you getting the picture? There's like a hundred freeways. Dallas-Fort Worth has built its city around this freeway system. And guess what happens when you do that? No, guess what happens when you do that? You get pockets of people and those freeways fill up with cars. That's what they do. They're built for that, so we fill them with cars. I know that sounds strange, but city planners have shifted. They've taken this right turn from building cities for cars to building cities for people, which sounds strange because you think, well, cars are people trying to get somewhere, and they're trying to get there. But the difference between putting a park and putting a road through changes how people use your landscape. You put a park bench somewhere. I was just meeting with um, someone at the Seed Center the other day. They have, a, they have a small little parking lot. They're going to put a bench and a, few, and a few places to sit. And you know what's going to happen? People are going to use that. You put it there. If you build it, they will come. If you put it there, people will show up and use what you've placed there. In cities, they're now literally removing lanes, changing intersections. They're taking parking lots and turning them into small parks and places of gathering. And it turns out when you do that, people show up. Because the way our environment around us is shaped, shapes the way we use it. Our cultural or our social imaginaries are exactly the same way. So that's a physical way that things happen. But our our imagination of what happens in the culture is the same way. When our culture tells us broad stories about who we are and how we live, I'm American, I'm Canadian, that means I ascribe to X, Y, Z. That shapes how we live and how we think and how we breathe. I live in a, in a culture that's run by wealth and power and capitalism. That shapes how I think. It takes the imagination of someone like Paul to let us identify those things 
and then move beyond it. I was watching a cartoon a few years ago. It's been a while now because I literally, I don't, like you can block things on Netflix for your kids. We blocked Teen Titans. Because I was watching an episode with my kids, which is obnoxious and annoying. It's not like a, like a great cartoon anyway, but, but the, the, it's obnoxious. I'm sorry. What can I say? What can I say? Wait till I, wait till you hear what comes next. I'm watching this episode with my kids and the premise of the show, I can't make this up, okay? The premise of the show is that this team of titans, or whatever they are, has to save the world. To do so, you can't make this up. To do so, they have to go Black Friday shopping. As you do. They have to go. That's in the show, and one of them doesn't want to go, and the, and the others are trying to get them to go. That's the premise of the show. When you see the cultural images clearly, you see them everywhere. In a world that is dominated by consumerism, we identify our heroes and our villains by shopping and our needs and our consumer purchases. If we don't recognize those images, we can't undo them and we can't tell a different story. Paul's point from the beginning of Romans, and as he walks through and he talks about the barbarians of Spain and the Gentiles, which is a derogatory term, but he's trying to say we're including everyone. As he does this, he tells them a story about a world that functions differently, one that is is not finding peace through Caesar, but finds peace through the harmony of all working together, not through the subjugation of some and the empowerment of others. Paul is imagining a world that looks differently. We have to do the same or we fall into place with everything that God has asked us not to do. So often we've taken Paul And we've talked about the moral outrages that Paul sees in the culture. That is not even the start of what Paul is trying to do. It's not about morality for Paul. It's about the bigger picture of empire telling us what to believe and know about the world around us. That sounds a little evangelical. I didn't mean it that way. What Paul is trying to get us to see is that the world can function differently if we're able to live in it and reimagine the way God has called us to live. Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Open Door Church. Our intro and outro music was created by Lee Rosevere and is used under a Creative Commons by Attribution license. Have a great week, ask the hard questions, and explore God's love. Everyone is always welcome to join the journey with us at Open Door. Learn more at opendoorfamily.ca. That's open door 
family.ca